Welcome to Sports History 101. Hello, people. This is Sports History 101, and I am Ray Delgado. Thank you, as always, for listening to the podcast and taking some time out of your day, night, morning, evening, whatever, whatever time it is. Thanks for listening. We really do appreciate it. And uh, hopefully, got a good one in store for you today. One that potentially you have not heard of before. So, at the time currently when this podcast is being recorded, the Winter Olympics had just started not too long ago. And as such, thought it was fitting to do something centered around the Olympics. So that gives us quite a range of sports in the Winter Olympics. You know, you've got all kinds of stuff. You've got hockey. You know, you've got skiing, snowboarding. I mean, I'm not just going to go through and list everything, but there's there's quite a few sports. But the one that we're going to focus on today is about skiing. And it's about someone who is, I mean, arguably the most notorious notorious, excuse me, British skier of all time. So Michael David Edwards is his name, and he was born in, bear with me here, Cheltenham, Gloucestershire, England in 1963. So if I got that wrong, those of you from England or those of you who have visited England, I apologize. I'll say it one more time. Cheltenham, Gloucestershire, Gloucestershire, whatever. Basically, it's a working class city. And as such, his father was a plasterer. So literally, putting plaster on walls and stuff like that. And that was the family business for generations, basically. His mother then also worked, and she worked at an aluminum door factory also. So working class family in a working class town. At 13 years old, Michael, who would later be known as Eddie, I think that was just a nickname that he decided to go by. He put on skis for the very first time on a school trip to Italy. And that was kind of the start of his skiing career. He must have really liked it because he started to really take it seriously and compete. And it got pretty good. He got was good enough to actually make the British national team, which, I mean, that's a difficult feat in itself, just on its own at any level with the goal to compete at the 1984 Olympics in Sarajevo, or Sarajevo, which is the capital of Bosnia and Herzegovina, on the alpine skiing team, which is basically like downhill skiing. Uh, but he failed to qualify for the team. So he was pretty bummed out, as you'd imagine. But he didn't stop there. He actually then moved to Lake Placid, New York, which was the home of one of the early Olympics, early Winter Olympics to try competition in North America. He's like, okay, well, I'm not good enough to make the British national team, but let's stick with this and see what I can do. Well, he ran out of money very fast because skiing is an expensive sport, as one could imagine. And he essentially had nothing left. So he still had the dream of making the Olympics, though, but he knew it was not going to be in downhill skiing. So a quote from him, said, so I looked for something cheaper to do, and I saw the ski jumps, and I thought, well, 
Britain has a lot of alpine skiers, cross-country skiers, biathlon skiers, but we'd never had a jumper. And I thought, I'll give it a go. So he did. He actually got some equipment from a shed at the bottom of the hill where he lived in Lake Placid. There was a, uh, a place where he trained and he went in to ask the, the staff, like, hey, do you have any equipment? And they're like, yeah, the shed at the bottom of the hill, you can take whatever you want. So with some old skis, a pair of boots and a helmet, he was off. In the summer of 1986, which was about 18 months before the next Olympics, he began competition as a ski jumper. So a ski jumper is like you see the absolutely insane people. You have to just put that out there where they go to the top of a hill. They're on like a basically a platform and they they are off to the side and they scooch out onto this little bar basically. And they put their skis into two grooves. And then when they're ready to go, when they get the green light to go, they slide off of that little bar they're sitting on. And their skis stay in those grooves. So they slide down and they pick up speed. And then at the end, there's a little uptick that basically launches you. And they, I mean, it's it's hard to, to technically describe without seeing it. But they launch off this ramp and then it's just a big hill and they have to fly in the air as long as they possibly can. And you're measured for distance. Now you're measured for like style points too, which gets really technical there. They also move the little bar. It's called like the gate up and down depending on where the wind is at so that you're not, I think it's so like to help with safety and stuff or you're not flying too far or not flying too short and all that stuff. And it gets really complicated now. But essentially, that's it. Back in the day, it was two, from at least what I could gather. Basically, you all go from the same spot and you see who can go the farthest. And there's there's two different hills. So there's a normal hill, which is 70 meters tall. And then there's the large hill, with it, which is 90 meters tall. So 70 meters is about 230 feet tall. And then 90 meters is about 300 feet tall. So they were actually showing it on these current Winter Olympics in Beijing. And the big, the large hill is taller than the Statue of Liberty by a good little bit, actually. It's by like, like 50 feet or something. Like it's, it's a long way up there and it, it's pretty crazy. So Eddie decided to compete in that. But like I said, he had borrowed equipment. He had no money. He had no coach. He had no team. England hadn't competed in the event. And he basically had no support that way. So he, he traveled around. He slept in his mom's Chevy Cavalier. He ate out of the garbage when he needed to. He did really any odd job that he could possibly find with you know shoveling snow or scrubbing floors or whatever. To just earn a buck or two and, and make ends meet, essentially. And all in that time... He continued to jump, so he was working on it day in and day out. From what I heard, and well, heard, but read, and I couldn't necessarily substantiate this, but he never actually practiced on snow. He just practiced where he could, and that, that didn't involve snow. So I'm not exactly sure how that happened. Wasn't able to see anything like that. 
but basically he jumped where he could. And he got injured a number of times, but he never stopped. I mean, just in one instance after a bad landing, just like you see in the old movies where they tie like a piece of cloth around your head, you know, with like a an ice pack in it so to on top of your head to keep it there. He tied a pillowcase around his head to hold his broken jaw in place after a bad landing and then continued to jump that same day. So he was a very interesting man. Very, uh, he had a lot of perseverance. We'll say that. He was also just a super awesome guy, super lighthearted and fun and had a really great personality and enjoyed himself and whatever he was doing. But he also worked really hard. He progressively got somewhat better. I mean, ski jumping, especially when you don't have, when you don't have real equipment, uh, pretty difficult. And he actually shattered the unofficial British record for the 70 meter hill, which is the shorter of the hills. But that was set in the 1920s. So like 65 years earlier when, um, you know, the, uh, Equipment and things that were available, you know, we're, we're not even close to the same, but he, he shattered the record and, and he had the record. And like I said, he had a, had a good time. He joked around. He's very lighthearted, but he took it really seriously and it was really important to him. And in 1987, he actually competed in the world championships representing Britain. And by the end, he was ranked 55th in the world after finishing dead last. So he finished last in the world championships, which obviously that meant there were 55, 55 competitors and he was 55. He was the only British competitor though. And through being essentially, that means he was ranked 55th in the world, like I mentioned, and being the only British competitor, that meant that he actually qualified to compete in the 1988 Winter Olympics in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. In one more of his odd adventures, like I said, he did whatever he could, stayed wherever he could. You know, one of his odd adventures, he was actually staying in a mental hospital in Finland. One of the local team's um, ski jumping coaches was working there, and Eddie somehow managed to be able to stay there for a little bit. That was the place that he actually got the call that he made the British Olympic team, that he was going to go compete in the 88 Olympics. He was staying in a mental hospital in Finland. And that meant that Eddie would finally get to realize his dream of being an Olympic athlete, but not necessarily a good one. More after a quick break. When arriving in Calgary, he was welcomed by a number of fans. People actually knew who he was and were happy to see him. And one of the banners that they made read, quote, welcome to Calgary, Eddie the Eagle. And from that point, his nickname was born. He was called Eddie the Eagle as this episode title entails. Not really sure how they came up with that or yeah, not really sure how they came up with that or why it stuck, but it did. And people really at the Olympics took to Eddie almost immediately. He was quite the character, you know, as I mentioned earlier, he's a fun guy, did a lot of cool stuff and uh, never tried to pretend that he was something he wasn't. I mean, he worked really hard, so people respected him for that. And he liked to have a good time like the laugh and tell jokes and all good stuff. While he was there, the Italian team actually gave him a new helmet. The old one he'd been using and had trained with actually had a strap, like the chin strap was made of just a piece of string. 
and the Austrians let him use some skis. So he basically had borrowed equipment. He also had a pair of pink goggles. And I forgot to mention this earlier, but he wore thick, they're called Coke bottle glasses that basically you're now they're your prototypical old, old man glasses, honestly. If anyone listening to this podcast wears those type of glasses, apologies, but got to paint the picture. And his glasses he had, so he wore those under his pink goggles, and they would often fog up and he wouldn't be able to see anything. He got, got some boots, so he had got to borrow some boots and actually had to wear six pairs of socks to fit in them because they were way too big. And he also weighed 82 kilograms, which is around 180 pounds, and he was clearly the heaviest guy in the field which apart from everything else made him stick out he was became to be known at the olympics as the jumper who quote made it look difficult it's funny everyone always says you know you see these elite athletes these unbelievable athletes are like they make it look easy well eddie made it look difficult said quote i was a true amateur and embodied what the olympic spirit is all about To me, competing was all that mattered. Americans are very much win, win, win. In England, we don't give a fig whether you win. It's great if you do, but we appreciate those who don't. The failures are the people who never get off their bums. Anyone who has a go is a success. And I think there's a lot of merit to that. And I think he definitely captures the Olympic spirit there. It's all about competing. It's all about the competition. It's not necessarily about the wins. The wins are obviously what we want, what everyone strives for. But getting to the Olympics is a huge thing. So he was definitely an amateur. And uh, that showed for sure in these Olympics. So on the normal hill, so that's a 70 meter high hill. You get two jumps from what I could gather. Two jumps and they would combine the distance to the two to give you your final score. So Eddie's two jumps. Combined distance was 69.2 meters, which was absolutely not even close, dead last in 58th place. Was literally less than half of the next competitor that flew 140.4 meters. And the gold medalist was over three times longer than Eddie's distance, which is just, I mean, the the competition gap is unbelievable. So next up, the large hill, he flew a combined distance of 57 and a half meters. And just like the first time, it wasn't even close. He might as well have just stayed home. Just, you know, stayed in Olympic Village and hung out a little bit. Maybe sat on the sidelines and watched. Last, dead last, absolutely last in 55th place. The next best person was 110.8 meters, which again was almost double what his score was. And then the gold medalist flew 224 meters, again, compared to Eddie's 57 and a half. So almost four times the distance. Like, <laughs> it, it wasn't close. And, it, you know, it's just what it is. However, because he was the first, he set a British record that stood all the way until 2001. So those terrible distances, things that really, I mean wasn't even didn't belong in the olympics in terms of the skill level they stood as a record for like 15 years which is awesome because again britain england did not they didn't do ski jumping it was not their thing still isn't their thing but obviously someone did break it in 2001 
So he wasn't even close to competitive, but it really didn't matter. Fans loved his personality. They just loved seeing him. You know, they, I think really from what I read, they really loved seeing a person there, like a real person. These Olympic athletes are so good at what they do that they're kind of unrelatable at times. Eddie was definitely relatable. Even the media loved him. And he received more media requests than any athlete there. And they uh, they loved him. He gave all kinds of interviews and everything. Even at the close of the Olympic Games, the CEO of the Calgary Olympics Olympic Games mentioned Eddie in the closing ceremony. Not directly, but it's, it's pretty clear here. They quote, you have captured our hearts and filled us with memories. You've broken world records and you have established many of your own personal bests. Some of you have even soared like an eagle. Eddie the Eagle, everybody. It's awesome. On the flip side of the love and the adulation that he got from fans, the sport was not really that happy. I mean, the other jumpers were not happy because he stole the spotlight from them, basically, and he was terrible in comparison to them. And they thought he was making a mockery of the proceedings. But, you know, he was there. He qualified fair and square, and and he competed. Well, shortly after that Olympics, the ski jumping community, I apologize, I didn't, I didn't see who the governing body was, but they created the Eddie the Eagle rule, setting the guidelines on qualifying for the Olympics and really for qualifying for international competition. Basically to stop amateurs from competing like Eddie. The new rule required that jumpers have to place in the top 50 in the world or be ranked in the top 30% to compete, whichever was lesser, essentially. Whichever was more difficult was what, what the standard was. So that meant that he was out. Eddie uh, tried again, but was unable to get back. But he ended up okay. I mean, he, when he went home after the Olympics, he had a huge non-victory parade thrown for him in his hometown of Cheltenham, Cheltenham, Cheltenham. That sounds right. Like I said, he tried to make it back to the Olympics. He tried to make it. So he competed in the 88 Olympics. They tried to make it back in 92 and 94 and no dice, had no luck. For 1998, he tried again and actually earned a five-year sponsorship with Eagle Airlines to get help to actually get to the Olympics. But he, he couldn't make it again. So his, I guess, competitive career was over, but then he launched a very lucrative career after that point. I mean, he appeared, well, I, I guess this is all kind of intertwined as he's trying to get back to the Olympics, but he appeared on The Tonight Show. I mean, there were Eddie the Eagle t-shirts, hats, pins, keychains, all kinds of stuff. The Monster Raving Looney Party, which is a political party, really small political party, off the wall, weird people, basically, uh, took him in as their minister for Butter Mountains. So I didn't look too far into this because it wasn't really that relevant. But apparently this party thinks, or maybe it's real, I don't know, that uh, different European countries, they withhold butter. So they basically leave butter out of the market to drive up the price. So there are butter mountains in different places. So they made him the minister of butter mountains and... Uh, I think his only political point that he stood for was that ski jumpers shouldn't have to pay taxes, which I thought that was pretty good. 
He then just had all kinds of weird jobs. I mean, he judged beauty pageants. He was shot out of circus cannons. Uh, he has the record for um, like a like jump. Oh, man, I can't think of the term now. Uh, for a, a stunt jump, that's what it is. He cleared some ridiculous like eight buses and 12 cars in the air jumping something. Yeah, it's crazy. I don't know. And then he also recorded a song about being an Olympian. It was called Fly, Eddie Fly. And then actually had another single composed by... So the first song was composed by somebody else, and he sang it. The second one was composed by a Finnish protest singer named Anti-Euro Hammerberg, a.k.a. Erwin Goodman. I don't know how you get from there to there, but people knew him as Erwin Goodman, apparently. So... He wrote the song and invited Eddie to come to Finland with him so that they could sing it and, and kind of do like a little event with it. So Eddie flew to Finland to sing. But the day that he landed, Goodman died. He had like a heart attack, I think, and died. So there's a quick flip the script and Eddie went still went on at the concert, but it was a tribute. And he actually learned the song that was entirely in Finnish. He didn't know a lick of Finnish. He learned it phonetically so he could sing it literally just the sounds. And Finland loved it. The song went to number two on their music charts. So then he went on a, on a tour with a band and sang this song around the country of Finland. And sang like at some points in front of like 70,000 people, which is just unbelievable. So over the course of all of this, he made a million dollars. And while he was competing to try and get to the Olympics, he put it in a trust so that he could maintain his amateur status. Because in, in order to be, I don't think that's, that's not that way anymore, but it used to be that you had to be an amateur in at least some sports to be able to compete in the Olympics. And um, put it in a trust. And that trust was mismanaged by the trustees. And all they blew all of his money. It was all gone. So he sued and ended up getting a hundred thousand. Um, I believe it was euros then, because yeah, had to have been maybe it was pounds. I'm not sure. Hundred thousand of it back, which is a tenth of what he put in there, and that sucks. But he was just like, you know what? It's better than getting nothing. So he got that, and then kind of moving forward, he he ended up getting a law degree. So actually, through that litigation with the trust. He got interested in law and got earned his law degree in, I think it was 2002 or something in the early 2000s. And I don't know if he ever actually became a practicing lawyer. I don't think he did. But uh, he got a law degree and actually got his own movie. So actually before then, in 2010, he returned, got to return to Canada as part of the torch relay for the Vancouver Olympics, which he thought was really cool and uh, felt apparently... Like a lot of pressure, just don't drop the torch, just don't drop it, and and that was cool because he got to return to Canada for, you know, when what made him famous, made him known. And then in 2016, he had a movie about his life, and it was pretty cool. And the main actor was, oh, now his his name is escaping me. What his name is? Uh, Taron Edgerton, excuse me, was he played Eddie, and then Hugh Jackman was the 
his coach. So the movie took some liberties there because Eddie didn't really have a coach. He had a guy that helped him a little bit here and there, but it certainly wasn't a coach. But through that kind of resurgence, that movie in 2016, Eddie then got all kinds of speaking gigs and was doing motivational speaking and speaking on, you know, speaking to conferences, and just really large groups of people for, for years. He said, they, he had multiple speeches per week from essentially then till the start of the, the pandemic, which is crazy. And it's awesome. It was uh, quite the story of someone who, you know, was a really poor athlete. Well, I guess poor performance, but was a really determined athlete and really great person and really just wanted to become an Olympian and tried his very best to do so. And he did. And he didn't necessarily compete, but he did. In his own words, Eddie wished he flew like an eagle, as his his nickname, but it was more like an ostrich, and he'll likely go down as one of the worst Olympic athletes in history, but he thoroughly enjoyed himself and feels like he embodied the Olympic way. Like I mentioned, I read that quote earlier, and I'm still, I'm inclined to agree. I think that he definitely embodied the Olympics and that it's, you know, it's for the highest level of competition but it's also for anybody who can get there, you know, it's, it's, and that's what it, what it should be. The 88 Olympics would more likely be known for the Jamaican bobsled team. And there's actually pictures of Eddie, the Eagle with the Jamaican bobsled team, the very first team to ever make it from Jamaica. And like one of the first, I think to, or maybe the, even the first to make it from, you know, like a tropical, like the Caribbean or just tropical area, but uh, hopefully more, Hopefully we'll go more in depth on the Jamaican bobsled team another time. But uh, until then, you know, let's let's celebrate Eddie the Eagle and his unbelievably poor ski jumping skills and yet his never-ending determination. Well, enjoy the Olympics if uh, you were watching those. I think, you know, it's it's always fun to see the Olympics on a world stage. I know they're they're across the world for those of us in the United States. So the uh, times are a little interesting, but uh, it should be fun and it should be good. And when you see ski jumping, it might have already happened. But uh, if you ski, see ski jumping, just think of Eddie the Eagle and think of how difficult that actually is that they're flying now like 100 meters and plus and, you know, being true eagles and not ostriches. Thank you for listening. And until next time, everybody, stay safe and remember that Jesus loves you. Thank you.